barely. I, I, what I remember about that movie is that it's nothing memorable. Radio Drome. Welcome to another episode of Radio Drome. I am Josh Hadley. Cecil is still off because he's got those personal that personal tragedy in his life, so hopefully he'll be back soon, but he's got all the time he needs. Peter, well, I recorded a commentary track with him last night, but apparently he overslept because he just didn't show today, so I had to scrape the bottom of the internet and came up with Frederick Fritz. Hello, from the bottom of the internet. If you want to help out the show, or if you want to get something for your isolation here, there's always Adam and Eve. They still deliver. Go to adamandeve.com. Use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E, and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free sex swing, and free U.S. shipping. All you have to do is use the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. And also, if you're, especially with some of the weirdo movies we're going to be talking about tonight, if you're going to be going to some of the skeevier parts of the internet you need a virtual private network a vpn go to 1201beyond.com backslash drome vpn and then that will bring you over to nord's site nordvpn where they will encode your data they'll protect your data you'll be able to get around region locking we're not supposed to talk about torrenting so i'll just bring it up and that's it 1201beyond.com backslash drome vpn go through that and you'll be able to get nord for 75 percent off of a three-year plan it's only three dollars and 49 cents a month for nord's protection it's absolutely worth it so tonight what i wanted to talk about fred you remember i don't know maybe two years ago you and i looked at the history of avco embassy you know a company we like a lot of the weirdo movies that they made and the weird behind the scenes and how they kept changing owners and changing focus and then it no longer felt like avco embassy anymore we're gonna do that again but for film ventures international When most people think of Film Ventures International, at least nowadays, they think of one thing. Mystery Science Theater 3000. And Uh, that's unfortunate for this company because that's what happened after the heyday of this company. And the reason they think of FVI, uh, you remember the Pod People episode of Mystery Science Theater? Oh, oh yeah, oh yeah. That's that's a, that's a famous, and or infamous one. And remember how it had that weird intro that was all sort of pixelized and discolored, and it was clearly from Galaxy Invader, and it had those weird credits, and the same thing happened with Cave Dwellers, which was actually Ator and all that. That's Film Venture International. They had nine movies on Mystery Science Theater. So that's why I think most people are going to recognize FVI for the garbage that was released in the late 80s and early 90s instead of the stuff that they released in the 70s and 80s. Would that be the most, would they hold the most movies ever featured? For one specific company, it would either be that 
or Corman. Mm, okay. But, okay. Although with Corman, I think those were still AIP, so that still would be AIP as a company. I think. Well, Corman had so many different companies too. I almost feel like that's not fair because <laughs> he's had so many partners. It's sort of cheating, you think? A little bit, yeah. It's it's not exactly the same thing. Well, it's kind of ironic because Roger Corman and Film Ventures International they have a lot of overlap because FVI, in a way, they were a direct competitor to New World, the Roger Corman owned New World Pictures, as well as until they went bankrupt, Sam Arkoff's American International. AIP Pictures, not to be confused with the later David A. Pryor Action International Pictures. These were the the three big boys, because Empire in the era we're talking about here in the early 70s doesn't really exist yet. Troma is not the Troma we know. So it's New World Pictures, Film Ventures International, and American International Pictures battling it out for the drive-ins and for the grindhouses. Like I said, you see a lot of overlap here, and especially later on, after the heyday of FVI, they would actually work with Roger Corman. I don't know if that's a concession or not. You remember this era, right? The era of not just making drive-in movies, but those companies, their whole thing was making drive-in movies. You remember this era, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's obviously, I was, you know, from 1970 to 1980, I was, you know, by 1980, I was 10. So it's not like I... I vividly knew what was going on around me with, with studios or something. But as I got to uh, learn films and the studio system through the 80s, that was a company that would come up from from time to time. And see, it was founded by Edward L. Montoro. And he be- he becomes a very divisive figure in the history of FVI over and over again, honestly. Now, we're going to talk about a couple of different eras here. I mainly want to focus on the middle era of Film Ventures International, because that's the most interesting one. Prior to that, when they started, they were basically an importer. They would take Italian movies, a a lot of Italian westerns, a lot of Italian action movies, just dub them and release them into theaters under a new American title. That was their big thing. They did some Japanese movies, some Spanish movies, but Italian movies were their big thing. And that's in this first era. I'm sure you remember movies like Alive or Preferably Dead. Or Fred, you might remember it as the Please Sue Us Over Our Retitling, Sundance Cassidy and Butch the Kid. Oh, that American classic. With a title like that, they're begging to be sued, though, aren't they? Yeah, that that's definitely a uh, uh, poking the dragon kind of a title. They imported The Love Factor, although you might know this one as Zeta One. Have you ever seen that? I, I saw this on VHS uh, as I, Zeta One. I don't think I've seen that one, but I have, I mean, the movie, but I have seen the, the title Zeta One. And then there was stuff like Boot Hill, the Woody Strode movie, the very much, I, I don't know, obviously FBI didn't make the movies at this point, they were just distributing them. When I watched the trailer for Boot Hill, I've seen the movie, but I haven't seen it since the 80s, so I watched the trailer, refresh my memory, oh my god, this is the man with no name. Literally, they even have the main character is called the man with no name. He looks... I had to check to make sure this wasn't Clint Eastwood. He looks so much like Clint Eastwood. Is that Terrence Hill? Yes, the Terrence Hill movie. Oh, yeah. I've seen that movie. Yeah, Terrence Hill was a huge star in Italy. He did the uh, My Name is Trinity films and was in a lot of comedies with uh, Bud Spence. Boot Hill is almost a we want Sergio Leone to sue us kind of movie isn't it it's got that it's a good movie i remember enjoying it actually uh but it's uh yeah it's it's got that vibe you you know where they got it from 
you know where they got it from. It's sort of in that same way the Django films were not really Django sequels, but they were obviously ripoffs. With FVI, there's a lot of times that they are begging to get sued, and that will eventually come to fruition in 1980. Montoro did not have a lot of scruples when it came to both marketing these movies or importing them because a lot of people sued him. He got sued multiple times by the people he worked for. He was always just just staying out of range of Warner Brothers and Paramount and Universal. He was so close that this, the movies he would make would be borderline plagiarism. So in a way, he was a trailblazer for the asylum. (laughs) But then he was also still releasing weird import movies like When Women Had Tales and When Women Lost Their Tales. Remember those horrendous caveman sitcom-y kind of comedies from 1970 and 72? Do you remember those so shockingly not funny caveman comedies? I seem to recall watching one or two of those on a Saturday morning show. Heavily edited, but... You know, and then they would bring over Sting of the West or Father Jackleg starring Jack Palance. Then they had the Massage Parlor Murders, The Legend of Blood Castle, based on Countess Bathory, The Bod Squad. They started William Sachs... <laughs> they started William Sachs' career with There Is No 13, which I think is an amazing film, honestly. And then they get into the era that I want to talk about. Now, the blockbuster is sort of a thing. Jaws doesn't exist yet, but Exorcist does. They were the importers of Beyond the Door, the the Avogito G. Asinitis film. This is one where, yeah, they were they were toeing the line because Warner Brothers actually sued them over the over this being a copy of The Exorcist. Warner Brothers lost, and that won't always be the case. When you look at Beyond the Door, yeah, we're talking plagiarism here again, aren't we? Yeah, but I've seen it, and it's it's funny. I I know this is going to sound bad, but it's like, it's so poorly done that that's why you can't really call it plagiarism. It's almost like kicking them when they're down. I happen to dig it, honestly. Well, it's it's got that charm. If you like those Italian films, it's got that charm to it. But I'm saying if you compare it to the, the gloss and production values of The Exorcist, they don't really come across that similar. And there's another film I know we're going to be bringing up, we'll talk about that, that has that very same issue, but in all truth, you just can't look at them and really think of them as the same movie, but we'll we'll get to that one. Well, see, what Montoro wanted to do with FVI, he always, like, like I brought up earlier, he, he saw Roger Corman as a competitor. He wanted to be the Roger Corman, he wanted to be the what Roger Corman is to the studio system to Roger Corman. Because he he said Corman would get would get Kurosawa movies and Kashinga movies and these really high class films to distribute and he would also make this trash Beverly Hillbilly who came from the sticks because he lived the same way he he always called he used this term the mug house the mug house crowd will always go to see these horror films they gotta see them the market for them will never disappear that market is still here today this is from 1978 and I was right about that that would change later he very much. I I think, remember how Charles Band, when Empire first started, he would make these movies for one or two million and make 20, 30 million bucks theatrically, and it kind of went to his head? That's what Montoro had. He would acquire all of these spaghetti westerns and things like that for 100,000, 150,000 bucks, and they'd make seven or eight million bucks opening weekend alone. So he started thinking, I can do no wrong. And you can tell how that's going to end up when you start thinking like that. So it reminds me of a certain canon group. 
Canon Group will come into this later on as well. A lot of things work towards the destruction of Film Ventures International. In 1974, he's got Beyond the Door. Then he decides, he, he's still got a couple of more coming out here, like The Immortal Bachelor, Convoy Buddies, Bruce Lee, The Man, The Myth. But around 1976, he decides, we're going to start making movies for Film Ventures International. We're not going to just distribute these Italian knockoffs. We're going to make movies with American stars for American audiences. What, what he thought was, because he came from the Midwest, he had this Midwest mentality instead of Roger Corman, who came from Los Angeles. Samuel Arkoff came from Los Angeles. They had L.A. ways of looking at things. Montoro decided, I'm going to make movies for the people Corman and Arkoff aren't making movies for. Quote, that would be teenage boys taking their dates out, out on a makeout night in the, in the Midwest. Corman wouldn't make movies for these kind of people. Montoro was like, we're going to make movies for the middle class. He considered himself a middle class filmmaker. Is that arrogance? Because I think it kind of is. I don't know. I mean, when I think of Roger Corman and some of those guys, I mean, I think he was already covering the Midwest. Uh, A lot of the people that remember Corman's stuff the best are people from, you know, the Midwest and the poor families. Those are the people that today talk about those days with such fondness. So I I would say there's a certain disconnect. He, He was probably thinking just because he personally wasn't from L.A. that that he was representing the people, but in truth, he really wasn't. So yeah, it does have a, maybe not so much arrogance, maybe just a disconnect from reality. Well, then he would go on to make one of their, one of their first original films, 1976's Grizzly, Jaws on Land. And he literally, again, it's almost like a self-defeating prophecy. Throughout all of Film Ventures International, Montoro so wanted to get sued. Otherwise, he would not have kept skirting this line. Like, remember the tagline for Grizzly? The most dangerous Jaws, but on land? (laughs) He's begging to be sued, isn't he? It was a different time, though. It was a different era. I don't know what to really say to that. I mean, it it does seem somewhat self-destructive. Again, arrogant. Maybe he thought, I'm just skirting that line enough that I'm being clever about it. Perhaps. I mean, ripoffs were nothing new. I mean, they'd been done since the 1950s, for crying out loud. So perhaps it was for that time period just a formula that he stuck to. Or it could be he thought maybe the big companies wouldn't notice because one of his, Jim Jim Bertegas was his promotions director at Film Ventures. And Bertegas remembers it as, quote, it was a different time in film promotion, man. Pictures didn't open wide on a thousand screens, especially the smaller pictures we were making. We'd go from territory to territory with a few hundred prints of the film at most, focusing on one region at a time, unquote. So maybe they thought we're under the radar enough Universal, Paramount, Warner Brothers, and Fox aren't going to notice us, but the people will notice us. That's quite possible. That's quite possible. I mean, even back then, the the most difficult thing for a movie is not so much to get it made, but to get it seen. So a lot of films sort of skirted under the radar that way. And then I think to add to, I'm going to say that the theme of of Film Ventures is arrogance, especially in this era. Grizzly became a, no pun intended, 
monster success. The film was made for a little over a million bucks. It made $40 million at the box office, which until Halloween would come on the scene two years later, started breaking records as the highest grossing independent film of all time. With Montoro's already growing arrogance, I think that made him even more feeling of bulletproof. When he saw, look, the people have spoken. They wanted Grizzly, and Grizzly made more money than its competitors at the time from Fox and Warner Brothers. So I think this really fed into the arrogance that Edward Montoro had, that Film Ventures is an actual mini-major now. Sure, why not? So then, after Grizzly, he made Shock, and then he made Day of the Animals with Grizzly's director, William Girdler. And this is where... Things get weird, because like I said, there's lots of lawsuits involved. He got sued all the time. For instance, Grizzly made so much money, part of the production deal with Grizzly and William Girdler was Girdler got a cut of profits. I think Montoro started to think, I'm not sharing this money. I don't care that you directed it. So he started hiding the money and providing, according to Girdler, false statements about what the film was doing to avoid having to pay him royalties. So Girdler sued him, and they settled out of court, and then a year later, Girdler made Day of the Animals for him. It's sort of weird because, one, why would you hire an employee who just got done suing you? And also, as the employee, why would you work for someone you had to sue? And maybe this was a... Herzog, Klaus Kinski situation, you know, they, they kind of needed each other at the end of the day because uh, Gurgler, what a name, is not a name that I know from really any other films outside of what we're talking about. And I'm not going to pretend to be some expert on this particular group of films. That that first chapter you were talking about, I barely knew any of them. But I like I saw Grizzly in the theater when I was a kid. I remember that was a kind of a big deal back then. And it could be simply no one else would hire him. Perhaps the producer just couldn't find anybody who was willing to work with him. It could be just they needed each other at the end of the day. We brought up William Sachs earlier with There Is No 13. William Sachs, you know, this is before Galaxina, which was not made by Film Ventures. That was that was made by a different company. I think that was Crown International that made Galaxina, if I'm remembering right. But William Sachs would also make... Now, Fred, you need to take us back to the 1970s. The, the kids of today are not going to understand. Remember, from about 76 to 79, there was... All I can talk about is the supernatural hooey fad that was going on with chariots of the gods and the bigfoot craze and est and you know all this psychic stuff remember how this was all over pop culture right all i can call it is the supernatural hooey era well i can even take one step further time life even jumped on that bandwagon i believe it was the early early 80s they released a whole series of books i have them you know what i'm talking about yes because i have them yeah one was on psychic powers one was on ufos and so that's how big it was back then am i exaggerating to say that this was like at least in america a cultural supernatural hooey era in the late 70s I don't think it's an exaggeration. No, no, it was it was a big deal back then. These type of things, like Chariots of the Gods, played in theaters, and so did some of the movies from FVI, like The Force Beyond, Secrets of the Gods. They they created like four or five, and I'm using the word documentaries in hard quotes here. These <laughs> documentaries on Bigfoot and on ancient aliens and on psychics and on devils. Sun Classic Pictures was the big one with that. Remember where 
where they had Rod Serling narrating these things. And then you had American Cinema releasing, they had Orson Welles. Film interest couldn't afford any of that, so they just had William Sachs. I don't know if that's a downgrade or not, because I genuinely like a lot of William Sachs' work. Force Beyond is, it's a hard sit nowadays to take seriously, man. Then they release things like Stunt Rock. I'm sure you've seen that one. That it just oh, pure insanity that's, film. Well, that's Australian though, isn't it? It's Brian Trenchard Smith, isn't it? I yeah, think that's I Trenchard think that's Smith. A, that's an Australian film, so they must have secured the rights. That movie is crazy. Well, and then they have that. That weird... was that was that post Mad Max period where they were every Australian with a camera was trying to see if they could get themselves killed on camera. It's basically Car Crash, the movie. Yeah, it really is. If you haven't seen it, people see it. It's nuts. And then there was The Fifth Floor, which was, it's it's a women in prison movie, but it's a women in a psychiatric prison movie. So, twist? Yeah. (laughs) It's not a general women in prison movie, but it's still a women in prison flick with, you know, women being forced to shower and they're, you know, the the lesbian uh, warden and all this. It's, It's a little bit different when you're, when you're watching a women in prison movie. Okay, these women committed crimes and they're in prison. When it's in a psychiatric prison, that's a lot more exploitative, I think, man. In a weird sort of way, yeah, because when you start thinking of people with mental disabilities, you start to think of, like, the concept of it it feels more predatory. Yeah, and it just feels kind of icky. But then there was Buckstone County Prison, which some of our foreign listeners might know it as SIBO. I, I remember that. But then remember, don't go in the house. FVI made that one as well. Can I just say these titles, man? What a different era, huh? Oh, I know. (laughs) What a different era. I miss it in a way. I really do. Yeah, yeah. The sort of just literal in-your-face weirdness. Then they made Search and Destroy, also known as Striking Back on home video. They made Spree, Hometown USA. The one I want to talk about purely exemplifies the crassness and opportunism that encapsulates Film Ventures International and Montero, and that is The Dark. Remember this one oh with, by, by Bud Cordos? I saw this in the theater. It was a double feature with, are you ready? Alien. Okay, that's a little too hitting a little too close to the target, I think. It was it was what showed. It was right here in this small little town in Michigan, and they showed it at the drive-in. My friend's dad, he was uh, both the projectionist and the security guard, so that should tell you what kind of drive-in it was. Basically, it was uh, it was Alien was first, and then The Dark. And the reason, now, if you haven't seen The Dark, you might wonder, how do these go together? Why, why is that too close to the target? Because, see, The Dark was started by Toby Hooper, and it was supposed to be sort of a, a zombie, sort of mummy sort of thing. He's It's like a slasher movie because this is right after halloween so it's a slasher movie with a sort of zombie-like creature that may have come from the pyramids he quit after i think two weeks of filming and then bud cordos came in and finished the movie and then in post-production the movie's done in post-production alien came out and they decided this alien stuff is really really hot right now instead of it being a zombie maybe from a pyramid what if hear me out here what if I'm listening. It's from outer space. And they Oh, I love it. Bud Cordos was trying to explain, but the movie's done. Oh no no. We just changed the kill scenes to have him zap rays out of his eyes and we'll superimpose a UFO dropping him off at the beginning. Because that'll work. No one will notice seamless now i personally it is i'm I'm going to admit i do dig the movie but oh my god is the post-production tinkering so obvious in this film isn't it 
Yes, and I have to say, there's one reason it's not one of my favorites, unfortunately, and it's something I've always felt. You can't see anything. Talk about a movie living up to its title. I'm like, come on, man. It's called The Dark. You literally can't see the majority of the movie. But I actually hate to admit this, but when we were sitting there watching this stupid thing at the drive-in, we actually started to get scared because we couldn't see anything. And we're just here. (laughs) And every so often somebody would get zapped with a bright light. And my friend's little brother freaked out so much we had to leave the drive-in. Do you remember how bad the po- the the obvious post-production tinkering is with the obvious optical effects that don't line up with his lasers coming out at weird angles of his eyes and the superimposed explosions on people and then they just freeze phrase, freeze frame and then there's a superimposed explosion from like Battlestar Galactica? Well, let's just say if you've ever seen a young kid who in the 2000s got his hand on Photoshop and Adobe premiere and made their own little science fiction movie yeah the effects were in that ballpark and this was a theatrically released film which to i guess montero's credit it made five times its budget so it worked (laughs) i like you it worked question mark We round out 1979 with two movies I genuinely love that more people need to see. H.G. Wells' The Shape of Things to Come, which should be an insult to H.G. Wells because it has nothing whatsoever to do with him. No, no, it doesn't. It's such a blatant Star Wars ripoff, but Jack Palance is fantastic in it. This is Canadian Star Wars, isn't it? Because this is a Canadian film. This is Canadian Star Wars. It's got the robots, lightsabers. This is Canadian Star Wars. See, I, I, I feel like you're being mean to Canada here, man. I feel... I'm not trying to. This is Canadian <laughs> it, Star Wars. It, it is, unfortunately. It's got that Saturday morning cheesy look it to it. It feels like Jason of Star but, Command, doesn't it? I was just going to bring that up. I was like, it, like it's if for those of you who grew up with Jason of Star Command, Arc 2, any of those type of shows, you'll know the look we're talking about. And that was this film. I, I don't know if I want to put it on poor Canada that's their Star Wars, but doggone is that movie funny. But then we get to The Visitor from 1979. I love this film. I first saw this film on like late night UHF TV when I was growing up, and then I saw the VHS. Remember, it's got that gorgeous poster that has nothing to do with the movie of the, yeah, the, gi- the giant the, disembodied the eyeball holding a bloody garrot over this over Georgia. Oh man, I, I just, I love it. You've got John Huston and Shelley Winters and Mel Ferrar and Lance Henriksen and Sam Peckinpah as an actor. He doesn't direct this. He, he's in one of the actors in it, directed by Avogito Asinaitis you've got Paige Connor you've got this whole movie is insanity I can't describe how amazingly late 70s The Visitor is to you people you absolutely have to see it or go and listen to the Projection Booth episode Mike White and I did years and years ago where we interviewed Paige Connor and Lance Henriksen for it The Visitor is one of the greatest movies you've never seen you will thank me for it you're welcome. What I've seen of it, it's incomprehensible, though, what I remember of what I saw. Sacrilege. Hey, I'm, I'm speaking the truth, though. Well, now we get to 1980, which would be 
<sighs> which would be the year that, which would be the really last year that Film Ventures International would actually be Film Ventures International that we know it. You've got Bava's Macabre that they picked up and released. You've got the sex comedy Pickup Summer. You've got the Grim Reaper, or as it was, as it was repurposed in America, Anthropophagus, which is an Italian flick. I know Peter loves it. I know lots oh, of people love it. I don't like this it. movie. I don't like this film. I never have. I, I'm with you. I don't care for it either. I, I, and no disrespect to our friend Pizarro. I, I just it was one I couldn't get into. And I guess I've also I've made it known though I'm not into the more mean spirited uh, horror films. So that's probably why. You know, and then they made Cardiac Arrest, that one about the heart surgeon serial killing people and stealing their hearts. I remember kind of digging that one honestly. This was the last year that they would actually make money and keep it. We come into 1981. They release Kill and Kill Again. Kung Fu flick, that was still a thing at the time. Treasure of the Yankee Zephyr. Or I saw this as Search yeah. for the Yankee Zephyr, but it's the same movie. Yeah, there's a couple. There's actually even a third title for that, too. And I loved Kill and Kill Again and uh, Treasure of the Yankee Zephyr. And then there was Texas Lightning, still kind of that exploitation thing going on. Then they released the Italian movie The Last Shark as Great <laughs> White. And this would be, Film Ventures would still go on after this, but this would be what kills Film Ventures. Great White was literal plagiarism of Jaws. To the point, Universal sued them. And unlike what happened with Warner Brothers when they sued over Beyond the Door, they got the injunction. They won. This is an Enzo, Enzo G. Castellari flick, and it is so close, Universal blocked it. Now, it did play. Because I know what you're about to say, Fred. It did play for one weekend before it was yanked out of theaters, and Universal has a long memory. A few years ago, there was an Enzo G. Castellari film festival that was in, that was at the Alamo Draft House. When Universal heard that Great White was supposed to be one of the films, they sent a cease and desist in 2017. The Universal's got a long memory about Great White. And like I said, it played one weekend, and it made $23 million, but Universal got a big chunk of that in the lawsuit. And I know you saw it in the theater, that's why I'm, mm -hmm. I'm saying, I, even though it got pulled, people like you still did, did get to see it. I saw it as a kid, yeah. I, uh, and it played more than a weekend here. But see, again, this is a small town. They didn't check every theater around the United States. We're a small town towards, we're in the upper part of lower Michigan. <laughs> they wouldn't have known it. And I got to see it in the theater because we were actually moving. Uh, we weren't moving to this town, but we were moving from, we lived out by the lake and moved in town at this time and my parents had a lot of adulting to do so they just dropped me off at the theater while they went and filled up paperwork and signed everything and i went to see great white and it's funny you should bring up about how it, they have a long memory because great white aka the last shark is on amazon prime right now now, nobody knows the finances of the company are going to come up very, very soon in this story. But nobody knew at the time whether the finances were as bad as it turned out they probably were. Because Montoro decided Great White was going to be the biggest promotion push that they ever 
put forward. One, they only spent $150,000 to buy the movie. They spent $4 million promoting it. I'm not 100% sure. I would have loved when he was alive to ask Percy Rodriguez because Percy Rodriguez narrated the Jaws trailers, right? You know, he had Mm -hmm. that great, deep voice. Most people will know Percy Rodriguez either as his trailer narration or he was the Lochnar in Heavy Metal. (laughs) <laughs> he was the voice of the Lochnar. That that's Percy Rodriguez. The trailer for Great White is such a blatant ripoff of Jaws. If they did not get Percy Rodriguez to narrate it, and he's never he never said up to his death whether he had or had not, they got the a dead on impersonation. So it looks like the trailer for Jaws. It sounds like the trailer for Jaws. The poster is almost an exact copy of the trailer for Jaws. They actually went to NATO, the not the NATO you're thinking of, the National Association of Theater Owners in Vegas to promote the movie. The promotions director, Birches, says, quote, This was by far the most promotion we ever did for a film. We had pop-up calendars with great white graphics. We had these dollar bills where we replaced George Washington with a shark sticker and sent them to exhibitors saying, This is the first dollar you're ever going to make on Great White. Ed really believed <laughs> in this movie. He believed in it so much that that at the NATO convention, he sent these guys out to the ocean to catch sharks and bring them back. We had a pool set up in the lobby at Caesar's Palace and had live sharks swimming in the lobby. Now that's promotion, unquote. I've never, ever heard of anything using live sharks for promotion in my life. I'm, I've been never. trying since I started researching this, Fred, to find photos of this. There have somebody at Caesar's Palace had to take photos of this. I want to see these photos. Yeah, and I gotta say, if this movie had been allowed to stay in America, I think it would have been gargantuan. I love this film. Of all the knockoffs out there, this could quite possibly be one of my all-time favorites. This movie is fun. It is so tacky, so, it is so jaws ball, and yet so jaws. It's it's wonderful. It's like it's it's jaws but always up to a point. There's a deviation here and a deviation there. It's fun. It's just fun. I love this movie. I can't recommend this one enough. It's just a great time. Any friend I've ever shown it to has enjoyed it. Not one of them said, well, that sucked, because they already know they're getting a bad Jaws knockoff. It's just, when you see that rubber shark crashing into the rocks under the water trying to get to the divers, how can you not be having a good time? But there's also something about Great White that really speaks to this was a different time. A time when a blatant, obvious Jaws knockoff could make $23 million in its opening weekend. This was a different film-going public than we have today. Yeah, this was, and this was just as the VHS boom was just about ready to hit. So you really didn't see a lot of that, at least in the American public, quite as much. This was something different, something kind of special. But by the time you end up in the VHS boom, you be, it became old hat very quickly. And that comes up again very shortly. Burgess also has this to say about... Now, I'm not sure if if this is factual or not, because they had to know. Burgess and Montero had 
to know that this was going to be a a legal landmine that they were releasing. But according to Burgess, quote, Ed swore that the Italians he was dealing with told him they'd had no trouble with Universal in Italy as far as copyright and Jaws were concerned, so he felt safe bringing it to the U.S. But once it was out, Universal pounced on it right when it started making money and shut the film down instantly with threats more than anything. It was basically, you pull this or we own you forever. Ed had been through this before with Beyond the Door, but he knew there was no way to beat this one. They took all the prints of Great White and Universal's been holding on to them ever since. Unquote. So it sounds like they knew this was a legal landmine and they said, do it anyway. Also alludes to there were probably financial problems that we have to release this film. Well, I mean, as far as Universal's concerned, we we can we know why they came down so hard because they of had se- to. Well, because they had sequels. They they were already planning a an avalanche of sequels. They had no choice because if they didn't, there would be his would not have been the first nor the last, as we saw. I mean, you already had those sub knockoffs, Grizzly. Uh, alligator, piranha. I mean, come on. There's a million of them. And when you look at Great White and just how similar it is, they had to. There was just no choice. And like I said, it's a shame because I think it's a lot of fun. But you know that if they didn't, the next film that came out would have probably starred Roy Schreider <laughs> fighting a giant shark. This was a setback for them. At the, right at the time that they were getting a little bit more, a little bit more of a percentage of this grindhouse sort of market because New World Pictures in the next year Roger Corman would end up selling that and become New Concord and start focusing on video distribution and AIP had just went bankrupt the year before so basically they they had shed one competitor and they were about to shed another competitor because after Corman sold New World that New World remember started to focus on bigger budget theatrical distribution so Film Ventures was kind of the only player in this game now although you do you they didn't know it at the time but we do have empire starting to come in at this point but they don't know that yet in the next year they released the blade master you know ator they released time walker which i watched this endlessly as a kid i i loved time walker i really did the whole mummy as an alien as a slasher it's kind of the dark again in a way isn't it there there are similar elements yeah yeah it's it's a lot of pov shots uh, a hint of science fiction throughout the weird glow that you see from behind the door and stuff just little pieces i mean it's not a it's not a good movie but it's very saturday morning creature feature schlock that was big at that time and you know, i i remember i got a kick out of it too you know that little alien twist was just enough although obviously the difference is the dark was not supposed to be an alien whereas in this it's clearly an alien and then they released they call me bruce which I haven't seen since I was a kid, but I remember those two movies being really funny. I'm actually purposefully never going back to watch those because I remember loving them. They were stupid and silly, and I know if I go back today, I'm going to go, oh, I just know it. What about with Bill Lustig's Vigilante? FVI made that. I've seen that one again, though. and I think that if you like that era of vigilante-style movies, I think it holds up. Then there is Splits. 
another sex con- teen sex comedy. And then there's the film. This might actually be, other than the Mystery Science Theater stuff, one of the their most favorite and favorably reviewed films, although I personally don't like it, Pieces. They mm. made Pieces. A- a- again, we're, t- we're talking about the are you trying to get sued promotions department? Because remember how they promoted this? You don't need to go to Texas to have a chainsaw massacre. It doesn't have to be on Friday the 13th. It's like, oh my God, you are again just begging to be sued. It's like I said, it's like he thought if I got if I get sued, that's free publicity, right? Well, see, here's the thing. I don't remember the Texas Chainsaw thing because I remember the other tagline. It's exactly what you think it is. Now, maybe that's because I saw it on home video and that's what it said on the box. Yeah, on the poster above the title, it said, you don't have to go to Texas for a chainsaw massacre. And underneath it, it said, you don't, it doesn't have to be Friday the 13th to end up in pieces. (laughs) And that's why I'm going, you're trying to get sued. Yeah, but in that film's case, it's nothing like those movies. It's more like a giallo than it is those type of films. And it's also really ham-fisted and bad. And again, I will say that it's in that category of, it's kind of fun to watch because it's really bad. It's really bad. I mean, it's excruciatingly misogynistic, though. But if you if you watch it with that in mind at how blatant and stupid the movie is, there's something kind of funny about it. Well, and then they, you know, continuing because slashers are big at this point, House on Sorority Row. And then they mm-hmm. made Extraterrestrial Visitors, which most people know as Pod People. It's the same film. Then in, the, in 1983, they made Hundra. Remember the, like, Conan-y kind of chick Conan movie? It- Barely, barely. What I remember about that movie is that it's nothing memorable. Then they made Mortuary, which is a slasher movie, Bill Paxton's first role. They, well, they didn't make, but they released the Master and, you know, the the Master TV series. The one with Lee Van Cleef. The one with Lee Van Cleef. They made that. They did City Limits, again, Mystery Science Theater classic. They did The Power, that movie that makes no sense. They were still trying to get in on the Kung Fu thing. Have you ever seen Alley Cat from 1984 with that chick that can't act and can't do Kung Fu where it's female death wish? Yeah, yeah, I've seen Alley Cat back I, in the eighties. I, I dig it, honestly. It's it's again, if you like that era and you like those type of movies, it's right up your alley, huh? Huh? You catty okay. bitch. Then they made Mutant, the Wings Hauser movie, not the alternate title for Corman's uh, Forbidden one World. One of my favorites. That's forever going to be a guilty pleasure. Of I mine. I like it too. I'm not going to argue with you. On I that. love Mutant. I it's uh, it's I have a fondness for that Saturday morning creature feature thing because in Michigan we had a thing called T. It was TV 50s Saturday morning creature feature. That's exactly the kind of movies they would show. Like other people, they grew up with drive-ins, like Joe, you know, your boy Joe uh, Joe Bob uh, Joe. Bob Briggs. Briggs, thank you. I could think of Briggs for some reason. You know, his was the drive-in. And even though I got a little taste of the drive-in growing up, for me, mostly it was things like HBO, VHS, but my very first was Saturday Morning Creature Feature. And movies like Mutant would were prevalent on that. Well, Mutant was the Hail Mary for the company. Because no one knew it at the time because Montero was cooking the books at this point. They walked into the office one day in 1985 and found that there was nothing there. Montero had cleaned out everything, cleaned out the bank account, cleaned every cent out of the place, and was never seen again. His wife had filed for divorce a few weeks before that. He had just gotten out of the hospital from a heart attack, and he 
cleaned out the coffers and was never seen again. And they think he fled to Mexico because one of his secretaries admitted he'd been trying to learn Spanish a few weeks before his disappearance. And he's literally never been seen again. This isn't where, oh, they find a body later. It's he looted the coffers and gone. And everyone was left holding the no pun intended pieces going, what just happened? Started a scumbag, ended a scumbag. I mean, who knows? There were rumors he had been dealing with the mob, but those were just rumors. So maybe he paid the mob off and they whacked him. Who knows? Or he just took all the money, moved to Mexico and started his life again and decided I got away with it. That's quite possible. Let me ask you then, do you kind of hope it's a D.B. Cooper ending where you kind of hope he got away with it or do you kind of hope it's just desserts? I hope just desserts because of the fact that he screwed over a lot of people by doing this. I was, a, a lot going to say. All he, of his employees didn't have a paycheck anymore. All of his employees were immediately out of a job. He screwed over a lot of people. So, no, I hope he didn't get away with it. Yeah, okay. Well, it, it, was, it seemed like a legitimate question. But then FVI wasn't technically dead. The company declared bankruptcy, obviously, after this, because they, they still owed bills to the film labs, the creditors, the, uh, the you know sub-distributors, the theaters. They had no way to pay any of this. So when, when Montero got, took this, he took the company. They declared bankruptcy, then they were bought a year later by INI Entertainment Group. And that's where we start to see all these movies with the new opening credits that are on Mystery Science Theater and seeing them sold into syndication. And INI literally just saw this as a catalog to make money with. They didn't care about Film Ventures International, the legacy, the legacy of the films. It was piecemeal this thing out, let's make some money. Which maybe with Montero's mentality, he might have actually appreciated that a little bit. Because he never really seemed to care about the films. Just what the films brought him. And that seems to be what I and I also did. They just saw this as this was just another media acquisition to them. With the kind of fate that you would figure would befall these type of films. I mean, they were made as cheap cash grabs and that's all they ended up as. And then, you know, I and I would distribute some films that were other than the FVI catalog up to this point, like Cutting Class, one of Brad Pitt's early films, they distributed that. And then eventually they even began working with New Concord and they distributed some of the later Deathstalker movies for Roger Corman, something I don't think Montero would have ever done because of his little rivalry with Corman. But the fact that I and I didn't care. I and I just didn't give a crap. It was, hey, Corman want, Corman's offering money? Okay. So with all of that said, what do you think the legacy of Film Ventures should be? Should it be that they honestly released some pretty cool films? They, they made some cool films? They gave the start to a bunch of people's careers? Or should it be Edward Montero was a scumbag who played everyone? I guess I'm going to have to go with you know, we talk about these companies, and some of them have amazing legacies. People can say whatever they want about canon films for all of time. It made an impact. It not only made some films that people love, it changed the way things were done. That, that company left its mark, and it's left its mark forever. Even a smaller company, such as Empire into Full Moon, again, those films made a mark. And they changed things. They changed things in the industry. They changed things around them. They changed things in the VHS market, in the home theater market. These films all had an impact of some sort. Going through this list with you, I really came to realize it was very random. There didn't seem to be a 
plan in place. You know what I mean? Those other film companies, you could see there's a there's a there's a path. Well, they with, knew what with, they were doing. With Montero, it seemed to be whatever's hot right now. If yeah, that's a sci-fi it, movie. We'll make a sci-fi movie. If it's a slasher movie, we'll make a slasher movie. Animal movie, animal movie. Go where the wind blows. And unfortunately, you see that that type of of business plan in in any business, but for a filmmaking business, it, it leaves no legacy. It it's it's really it's sad to say. I mean, I know we're doing an episode here, but it's sort of sad to say that it's not a very interesting legacy on the film end of things, on the behind the scenes and the sleazy nature and the knockoffs and the lawsuits and the threats and the fact that the guy disappeared with all the money. That's an interesting story. But the films themselves are a mixed bag, with a few of them are films we love. We love because of their low-budget, cheesy charm. But did you notice there's no real classics? like The Visitor no, is a classic. You shut your whore mouth. Uh, okay, like I said, there are no classics. And, <laughs> and it basically, there's nothing there to really grab onto. So I guess I have to go with the latter, that he was just a a sleazy exploitive individual perhaps there's a you know that made a few entertaining movies but almost accidentally but there's also the aspect i said i'd bring up canon and vcrs earlier there was also the aspect of this seemed to be a man who got frustrated easily and who was unable to see the future as much as he because when you're chasing trends that is not a business model that you're going to be able to sustain chasing trends eventually you're going to run out or you chase the wrong trend you know, like the yeah. Canon Salsa movies. Remember that? Or the Lombardo oh, movies? The, oh, but are you kidding me? Those are, I own them all. I have the box set. He did not see the VCR as something. He, he he literally had said he saw the VCR as a fad. That theatrical distribution, drive-ins, and grindhouses, that is how people are going to want to see movies. He ignored the VCR market because he thought it was just a trend. Whereas someone like Band and Corman and Kaufman embraced VHS and the VCR trend, and they all went on to great heights. Montero was like, it's just a fad, there's no point. And the irony is, this is a man who chased fads. There's nothing to grab onto. It's like if you know somebody who, I think maybe we've all met that person in our lives who, you know, I got this great idea, this great scheme, and then a week later, oh, I got this new idea, this other scheme, and they change. You'd never know who the person really is, and you never get to know them, and you never under fully understand them and realize they ultimately sort of create, build nothing. That's sort of what this sounds like to me. Uh, as far as the VHS thing, he had no vision, and perhaps that again just ties into the whole thing. Charlie Band had vision. That that cat knew what was coming, and that's probably why that maybe it's not the greatest legacy currently, but he did stick around to this very day. He knew. I think he knew instinctively. He was just he wasn't going to make it. I don't think he cared to. And I think that also plays into him running off with the money in 1985. When did, oh, yeah. when did Canon Films start to become huge? around 1984, 1985, because he also blamed Canon for destroying the market that he thought he was now the rightful owner of. They're spending 14, 15, 16 million dollars on the same kind of films we were only spending a million on, so now I've got to spend three million dollars to try and stay competitive with Canon. So it sounded like he had a little bit of a rivalry. Those bastards are outspending me, which is going to cost me more money to have to make these damn movies now, which it seems like that might have been another contributing factor in let's take the money and run. Yeah, I mean, if you look back, there was a lot 
of producers that complained about that. I know Lloyd Kaufman, he was talking about how they would make these cheesy little sex comedies. Uh, I think one they made was, uh, was it called Squeeze Play or something like that? And they would make all these teen sex comedies. And then all of a sudden that changed. The studios started making bigger budgeted sex comedies, Revenge of the Nerds and uh, Bachelor Party. Well, all of them. Bachelor Party, all of them with, you know, real actors, budgets, production value. They had to jump out of that market because that market was gone. Roger Corman said the same thing because after Star Wars, the types of movies Roger Corman made were now being made by studios. But all of these people, Kaufman, Corman, Charlie Band, they just switched gears. They just changed to a different genre. They went and looked for new opportunities. Sounds to me like this cat couldn't do that at all. I think it would be interesting to have a, a follow-up. I want to know what happened to Edward Montoro. I want to know if he died a rich man in Mexico, or if, if he got taken out by the mob, if he if it was somebody, you know, maybe he got he got killed and they raided the coffers, made it look like he disappeared. You know, maybe he was covered in sardine oil and fed to a tiger. I don't know. <laughs> I would really like to know what happened to Edward Montoro. That would be, you know what? There's a movie here. Film Ventures International, the movie of all the behind-the-scenes shenanigans. Why is that not being made and after it's made you have to post add laser shooting out of somebody's eyes it's it's gotta be done the dark i actually think you know what my favorite part of the dark is casey Kasem as the forensic scientist he sounds like he's about to introduce a song and any dedicated <laughs> song to someone at any moment while he's giving a forensic analysis He's unfortunately got one of those voices that it's just tied to one thing forever. At least he, he didn't do the Shaggy's voice in it. Oh gosh, oh gosh, that would have been great though. But so, all right, your final thoughts on Film Ventures International. Should people go and look for these movies, or is this just more of a curiosity company at this point? Because I think they're unfortunately more famous now due to Mystery Science Theater than they would be without them. Well, there, there's certain titles, of course. I mean, I, we recommended several during it. I mean, obviously, if you hadn't, people didn't pick up on it, go see The Last Shark, a.k.a. Great White. I really think that's a fun, fun movie. Mutant is worth it for the schlock, low-budget charm. The Visitor uh, is an all-time classic. Uh, like we were saying, Time Walker. <laughs> Just going to totally ignore me, huh? What? what? No, oh, oh. These films all have their place. Kill The the kill and kill, uh, or was it no, kill and be killed. And, oh, hang and on, then here. kill and kill again and was the sequel. That's what I'm screwing up. I keep wanting to say kill and kill again because that's actually the first one I saw. And then I saw kill or be killed later. Those are actually great for those type of kung fu movies if you like those type of films. There's a lot of films to enjoy here. The thing is, you probably, if you're listening to this show, you probably already know these films and you probably know them from other sources. I doubt you knew them from the studio or the person that produced them. They've probably come up many other ways and many other places, but now you know a little something. Heck, I learned a lot. I didn't know this company very well at all. My thoughts are, yes, go see some of them. I don't know that first period you were talking about at all, that that early, what was it, late 60s? The, 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 uh, the early, uh, what, what I dubbed, no pun intended, the dub period, because it was just foreign movies dubbed in English. Yeah, I think I knew like one of those titles. Definitely check out some of these titles. There's a lot of fun to be had, and you know, let's face it, the movies being made today kind of suck anyway. We're all in quarantine, so now's the time to go looking for these type of films. They're all 
all over the place from 2B to, like I said, The Last Shark, I can't believe, is on Amazon Prime. If people want to find Fred, they can't, right? Nope, nope. I am the Invisible Man. He is not on the social medias at all, but I am. You can contact me, Facebook, Twitter, 1201beyond.com. You can send an email to 1201beyond at gmail.com. Guys, try to be a cut above. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night.
Radiodrome is a 1201 Beyond production. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.